one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome everyone to Talking Space. This is a very special episode, episode number 319. And I say it's special because I got to interview some really special folks. I'll tell you about them in a minute, but let me tell you about the what, the when, and the wherefore. I was at uh, Kennedy Space Center with Gene McCulka. Gene and I were getting ready for our live launch broadcast of STS-134. As you no doubt know by now, on April 29th, STS-134's launch for that day was scrubbed and uh, had some troubleshooting and work to be done, which we've talked about on previous shows. But anyway, on the, starting on the 27th, I got to interview three NASA astronauts. On the 29th, I got the privilege of interviewing an International Space Station program scientist. And these four interviews are the show that you're about to hear. I want to say thank you to Gene McCulka. He contributed uh, most of the questions that I asked the astronauts. I had lived a little bit during these recorded conversations, but it was Gene's work in helping me get ready while I was elsewhere getting ready for our live launch show that uh, put this great opportunity together. Again, thank you, Gene. Appreciate your help. Everyone enjoy the show. On this show, I interviewed Dr. Michael Barrett. He was on the ISS, Expedition 19 and 20, and also he flew on STS-133. I interviewed NASA astronaut Steven Swanson. He flew on STS-117 and STS-119. I also interviewed NASA astronaut Dr. Michael Full. He flew on, get this, STS-45, STS-63. He was on the Mirror, part of the Mirror 23 crew via STS-84 up and STS-86 coming home. He also flew on STS-103. He was part of the International Space Station Expedition 8 via Soyuz TMA-3 launch. And also I interviewed NASA Johnson Space Center International Space Station Associate Program Scientist Dr. Tara Rutley. With all of these folks we talked about a lot of wide and varied things and I think you'll enjoy this. Sit back, listen, enjoy, and you'll see why I feel like 3 plus 1 adds up to wow. This is Mark Bradbury from Talking Space. I'm here with NASA astronaut Michael Barrett. And uh, it's a real treat to be able to talk to you. And I've got a few questions. One of them is from our, uh, one of our podcast panelists, Gene McCulka. And he noted that you had said in a blog post on the Beagle Project website that you awaited your own space flight with great anticipation. And he wanted to ask what, as a result of your spaceflight experience, that helped you in your field of aerospace medicine? Wow. Well, okay, so that 
podcast, or, or that, I'm sorry, blog note would have been before my first space flight. So fast forward now, I've uh, spent 199 days during my long duration flight and in this last uh, two-week mission. And uh, as an aerospace medicine guy, uh, who, if nothing else, takes copious notes, I've now seen over 30 different people in space besides myself. Uh, when your job is to characterize the human body's reaction to the spaceflight environment, including the physiology uh, and the human performance, the behavioral aspects of it, uh, nothing serves that better than being in space and seeing a whole bunch of different people with different experience levels, different adaptation rates. Um, and uh, so that's really what I've got now, is i got an experience base, my own personal one, and having seen a lot of other people in that spaceflight environment. So I've been able to, to kind of look at that against the background of what we know, the hard physiologic data, and uh, it certainly has given me a much better picture of what the human is like in space, you know, both physiologically and from the standpoint of human perform performance and behavior. Do you think that'll give you a, an advantage in the future with, you know, whatever's ahead for you professionally? Well, certainly spaceflight experience is an advantage for everybody who especially works in the space industry, and a lot of us hope to fly one more time, but... Uh, for me, what I'm trying to do with all of this is organize the knowledge base so that it's available to everybody. Now, the first edition of my textbook, which is Principles of Clinical Medicine for Spaceflight, came out uh, about a year before I took that first flight. Well, I'm already working on the second edition, and I can guarantee you the second edition will, will have a few more insights in it that I didn't have beforehand. Um, so the idea, again, is just to make uh, a standard of care, a standard set of knowledge for space medicine that's, again, available to everybody. I think I can better do now, that now than I could before. No substitute for experience. No substitute for experience, but I think we can educate people who haven't been up there to about 90-something percent of what they need to know to equip people to go up there. Good. Uh, when you returned home from the 133 mission, you indicated it was a great time to be an astronaut. <coughs> even with our access to space limited to one international partner. Um, with this limited access to the ISS, how is this a good time to be a member of the Astronaut Corps? Well, double-edged. Um, obviously, we're sad to see the shuttle go. Uh, but, you know, there's two things happening right now. First of all, the station is up there. It's completed, and instead of assembly now, we're focusing on doing the work that Space Station was designed for, science, uh, proving new engineering concepts and technologies and systems that are going to make us go further. So we're very engaged in that. And at the same time, it's a kind of a unique time in history because we have that big flourishing program and we're designing new spaceships. And the astronauts are very involved in that as well. Now, would it have been better to have those already designed and online and ready to step onto as soon as the shuttle is ended? Of course. I mean, that's what we all wanted. Uh, nonetheless, that activity is going on. And I can't think of a time in history where there were more um, organizations or enterprises designing spaceships than now, you know, for delivering cargo to the station, for getting people to the station, and potentially further. So given a vigorous existing program, which is wildly productive, and the new spaceships we have on the design table, I mean, I, I think it's a great time. I've I got to ask this one. This is another yeah. question from Gene. Uh, he, he's interested in what experiment sticks out in your mind while on the ISS or shuttle, and how can we better popularize ISS activities that would one day benefit us? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. People, uh, we, we make some pretty nifty discoveries in, in space. And uh, if you understand basic physiology, some of these things just catch you totally off guard. Now, if you made that discovery on the ground, even if it's momentous, and you tell the average person, hey, I just discovered a basic understanding of lung physiology, they, they probably look at you like you're a little bit nutty. So it's, it's just the, the human, we, we don't latch on to that kind of stuff as exciting as some of the other things that, that catch our attention. However... Um, the fact that the, the lung, for instance, we thought that gravity was totally ruling the, the perfusion with blood and the ventilation with air and that all the mismatches would go away in space. They don't. We don't know why. There's something there that's ruling that we didn't understand. Uh, the pressure of the, the right side of the heart where the veins come back, we thought that pressure would go up in space, just like it does when you uh, put someone to bed rest. It made perfect sense. It doesn't happen. We don't know why. I mean, it goes down in space. I mean, that's very interesting. We find that there's uh, capacity to store large amounts of sodium in the body that we have never knew before. But we now know, because you unmask this with, with taking gravity away, if I were to tell the average person uh, over a beer that, hey, how about this? Uh, you know, they'd probably try to buy another one <laughs> and get you off the topic. But this is interesting stuff. It tells you there's so much basic things that we haven't learned about the human body that we will learn because of this venue. So, I mean, those are some of the biggest things. Um, where One of the things that you mentioned personally, we, we found out that uh, intracranial pressure on some people goes up, the pressure inside your head. And for some people, vision changes. And these two phenomena may be coupled. It's a brand new thing. It's for us, anyway, we've discovered it. It's been going on for decades, but now we have the tools to look. It's a big deal. It's a big discovery. And what does it mean? I mean, we don't know yet. But, I mean, we're still finding this stuff. So it's, it's, uh, we, we could do a better job of transmitting this to the public, no question. Um, but I find this stuff incredibly interesting. What's it like to come home when you've been in space for a short mission or a long flight? What's it like coming home and finally getting back to your family and, and the life that's so much of, of your world prior to a, a space flight? Well, the differences between those two are vast. Uh, the, the long flight, uh, I had to train for a few years. Half of that time was away from home. Uh, and then when I flew, I launched from Kazakhstan on the Soyuz and came back there, and I had to leave home six weeks before launch. I was essentially gone from my family for nine months for that flight. So coming home, oh, I, I couldn't wait to get home. I have five children. I mean, I really wanted to get home. We're a very close family. Uh, when I got assigned to this other mission, I was actually still in flight, and I told my wife, I called her on her Internet protocol phone. I said, honey, I got another flight opportunity. Silence. A uh, little time went by, says, on what vehicle, for how long? On the shuttle, for two weeks, good to go. Uh, and training at home, first of all, so I came home every night. Training in English, I didn't have to train in Russian or any other language. Uh, flying for just a couple of weeks and down, it's very different. It's just like a short trip. And it was no big deal whatsoever. My kids got to watch the launch and the landing, and it was wonderful. And they were here? They were here. Great. Thank so, you very much. You're welcome. This is Mark Ratterman with Talking Space, and I'm here with astronaut Steve Swanson. We got some questions for you, Steve, from, Great, from one of the folks on our show, Gene McCulka, and a couple from me. So they're a little different as to, as no to where we're headed. But one of Gene's questions is, uh, he, he said you've logged a little over 26 hours in EVA, and what advice would you give the 134 crew as they prepare for their EVA since your 117 flight had, uh, I believe, four 
Yes, and then also 119 I did a few, but yeah, so I have talked to them about uh, EVAs, and uh, the biggest thing I guess I like to stress is, one, have a good time, <laughs> in the sense of don't get too overwhelmed, but two, it is a little different than the pool. The pool gives you a false sense of stability because of water drag, so just realize that you are going to move around more than you do in the pool. In a way, it's easier, in a way, it's more difficult, so just be ready for that. And... Uh, Again, just enjoy your time out there. Also, a question from Gene. Given your experience in space, if you could talk to one of the designers of any of the commercial vehicles, what would, uh, what would be your wish list for a possible shuttle replacement? That's a good question. I guess I'm more of the simplicity type. Don't make it too complicated. Um, Treat it almost like a, a minivan in a sense. You know, the seats are foldable up, however you want to do it. But uh, think of it that way. It's got to do multi-functions. And think of it in a way that uh, keeps it nice and simple, easy to, to work with. And maybe it's not as, as, as uh, I guess, fancy or complex that way. But it will still do the tasks that we need it to do and do it more easily. It seems like talking about complex and simple that the, the shuttle... So often the missions nowadays seem to go off uh, pretty smoothly. And is, do you think that's a result of just understanding systems and, and uh, kind of knowing where you might have trouble and being ready for it? Exactly. It's part of it. We definitely look at it in great detail. We also then practice multiple problems that could come up and think about all the problems that could come up and try to come up with solutions before they happen. Uh, you might not always guess right on the right on the problem, but if you've gone through that process, it makes it easier than when a different problem comes up. You've already been through the process. So that's good. I do think that does help, though, you're right. It makes it, the shuttle look like it's no problem, but we train for over a year for us for each shuttle mission, and there's people on the ground who have been working that for over three years probably to get the vehicle and all the other stuff ready to go. So it's not an easy task. It just, with a lot of hard work, it makes it look easy. You mentioned the neutral buoyancy lab and the differences there. Uh, I know when you're actually uh, in flight and, and getting ready for an EVA, it's, it's got to be, I would think, exciting. It's got to be, a, you know, one of those moments that you're, you're ready for and you've got the training. But how do you, what goes through your mind when you've got another run in the pool? Do you look forward to it? Is it something that, of course, I, I, I imagine you know that it's building blocks getting you ready. For, exactly. For as long as it's you know, building blocks uh, to get you ready for something else, it's, it's, it's good. And sometimes we're doing engineering evaluations of certain things, so you're helping other people out by trying to come up with ways to do uh, something's going to do later on. So you're helping them out to figure out how they would do it later on. Uh, but it can also get to be a, a more of a chore sometimes if there's not... That going on to it, you've been in the pool a hundred times or so, been in space, and because it is also you're in the water for over six hours, you know, and uh, it's a very a strenuous event, and so it can be long, but it's still I still enjoy it, I still have a good time with it, and uh, it's close thing you can get to being in space. So it's all good. Uh, I I saw in some notes that your education early on looks like it was pretty focused in computer science. How does that background relate to the work that you've done with NASA? When I first got to NASA, I worked as a software engineer on a shuttle training aircraft. I worked on the control systems of that aircraft. And that was great. I really enjoyed that, that job. 
I learned a lot about aircraft control systems in a sense too, plus just working in the NASA environment. And then uh, that helped me then go moving on to shuttle and understanding how the shuttle works, how the control systems, how all that stuff, even on the station, and how they all use the software to control the vehicle. I think that did help a lot. And uh, a last question, unless I come up with one that uh, as we talk, but yeah. um, like many astronauts, you worked with uh, the Capcom position during yes. mission control. Um, I have a picture of somebody that's trying to talk to three different people at once. What's it really like? Well, it is can be difficult at times, uh, but really it's it's uh, just trying to keep organized and understand what you're trying to say to the people on board. Because a lot of times what happens in the, in the mission control is a specialist who knows that equipment very well will say it in their terminology. And that's what, and you got to take it from their terminology to the crew terminology, which is sometimes a difficult thing. You kind of have to understand what the process is in the sense of what the guy on board is trying to do and put it in the terms like hey yeah you know just up a little to your right left you want to turn that bolt a little bit here or something like that versus giving it some technical uh, aspect to it so that's kind of one of the my most difficult things is just making it in terminology somebody on board can understand they might not know exactly that specialist level of detail so you have to kind of interpret for them of course you get the opportunity to to get feedback from them and kind of understand it yourself so that you can Translate it to the exactly. So if I don't understand myself, I'll ask the guy again. You know, is this what you mean? And put it in my words again. And hopefully, by the time we get done with that, then I understand it and can then put it in the speak that the astronaut on board will understand. Is it a pretty busy job being in Capcom? It varies. There are times when it's very busy, and then there's times where it's pretty boring. You know, sometimes the, the crew's just off having a meal or uh, doing something else, and they're not even talking. You will go for a couple hours without saying a word. And not bad, mind you, because you got a lot of stuff to do. But uh, sometimes, though, you're talking to say three different people at one time. Somebody's you know, on the station's working on the arms. Somebody's uh, doing a repair job on something else, and somebody else has an experiment going on. And you got to talk to all of them and keep each conversation distinct. Was one of the flights that you flew on a uh, Hubble servicing mission? No, I never did Hubble. Didn't do Hubble. You mentioned. Uh, having work that, that was accomplished that was never intended to be. And uh, yeah. it seems like that would be, in the case of Capcom, a situation where there's a great deal of conversation back and forth from, from air to ground. Yes. Station nowadays is pretty uh, has a lot of conversation just because of the experiments going on and there's always something breaking seems to be on board, just the way the system is. I mean, we're learning a lot about how to live in space for long periods of time and what kind of equipment we need. But when things break, you got to repair them. And the crews on board, they've been somewhat trained in them, but they have not, maybe haven't seen it for six months now, uh, that equipment. And so they have to really be kind of walk through a lot of times the procedures. And that takes a lot of calm there, too. I'm just curious. I wonder, and I know you can't predict the future and you don't know how things are going to play out, but with the uh, station being operated by six people from this point on with no additional NASA shuttles going up with a crew of six and seven and people jumping in and and doubling the uh, the effort on some tasks, how do you think it's going to go long term for the for the station to to keep up and to keep things going and to still get science done? Do you think they'll do well, or is it going to be well, a challenge? Well, it'll be a challenge. I think. I mean, we learn a lot just about the equipment on board and how to keep it running, and and uh, and then we do have just like any piece of equipment, it fails, and it's not easy to replace it. You have to bring up new equipment or try to fix it right there, and so you're doing a lot of stuff, and that just takes time. It really does. It takes a lot of time to keep it maintained. 
And we're finding out it probably takes, again, just like any vehicle, it takes more time to actually maintain it than you think it will originally. And so, and that cuts into the science a little bit. We're trying to overcome that, but it's still going to be always a battle, I believe, between the two. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. This is Mark Ratterman here at the press site with NASA astronaut Michael Fole, and I've got some questions from Gene McCulka. He's one of our panelists. He asked me to, to give you these questions to uh, help him out with his schedule. Great. He said um, that you were a participant in shuttle mirror program and log time on both MIR and the ISS. What are the differences in both MIR and the Russian segment of the ISS? Very good question, and one which uh, I also asked myself before I went to the space station, after I had uh, served my time on MIR. Um, and the answer, the short answer is, not much difference. Uh, the, when I came onto the ISS, into the Russian segment, arriving on a Soyuz uh, vehicle, uh, and I had arrived at the Mir on a shuttle, <laughs> on Atlantis actually, but uh, once I got into the service module, I thought, whoa, this is just like Mir. And I uh, looked around, the lights were brighter, it was less cluttered, um, maybe a little less food marks on the walls, <laughs> uh, where the juice gets, gets, gets away free and hits the Velcro on the wall. Um, but in general, uh, very similar, and the same feel. And most of that is due to the fact that the Russian psychologists, human factors people, use the same color schemes to denote floor, ceiling, and, and walls. They use the same muted uh, earth and sea and, and um, well, whatever, tones. And so it all looks similar. It's, it's sort of a, a, a Russian cultural thing, and you feel you're in a Russian vehicle. Um, it, the Soyuz spacecraft is also similar in that regard, in terms of the tones, colors, uh, etc. And, uh, and the way they make knobs, for example... <laughs> <laughs> what the color of the knobs and the way, the way they paint things. They're all similar. So those were similar. What was very different about an experience on the Russian segment um, on ISS compared to Mir was, of course, communications. We have almost continuous communications on the station and the ability to make phone calls, originate phone calls from the station. We never had that. On Mir, it was uh, 10 minutes a day you know, sounding, listening to what you thought was a train coming in through a tunnel <laughs> in the background as you try to hear what your, uh, your Capcom was telling you. And nowadays it's crystal clear. Nice to have some technological advances yeah. to help you out do your job. Um, this is one I hadn't thought about, but Gene did. So the relationship between the Mir crews and the Russian Mission Control Center was a very top-down relationship. Uh, Brian Burrow, in his book Dragonfly, even mentioned the drawing of a Russian flight controller being depicted as a puppeteer pulling the strings on, on Mir's uh, uh, astronauts. The U.S., on the other hand, seems to give their crews more autonomy in solving problems as they crop up. Has the dynamic between the Russian Mission Control Center and the ISS Russian crews changed as a result of, of this, this new... Space station? Well, I was very much aware of that um, apparent, and I use the word apparent, difference um, then when I went to the Mir station. And I was really, I felt that the crew were overly um, directed and not listened to for their own ideas and inputs. But to be honest, since then, uh, I think that both sides have the same approaches. 
And it was more of my own perception of it that it was different. Because both sides, do, the, the Russian side does do listen and do debrief their cosmonauts and do ask for the suggestions. Um, maybe because some of their senior managers have started to fly. <laughs> on the American side, we've always been listened to. But at the same time, on the American side, we're also directed. <laughs> and I'm more aware of being directed now by the American side than I was on the Mir. Possibly because we have so much communication. And I think maybe it's the uh, ubiquitous communication that's allowed on the Russian side to hear more often what the cosmonauts think and not just give them instructions and, you know, fire and forget. And on the American side, because they now have access to us all the time, they just direct us, direct us, <laughs> do our jobs. So it's kind of come together. Um, in, not, maybe not necessarily in a happy medium, but an understandable uh, middle ground. Has, has anyone ever made the statement uh, on station that uh, we could get some work done if they'd uh, leave us alone yeah. talking to us? Truly, I think uh, we, I have heard that sentiment a number of times, and it's because we have almost continuous calm. On the Russian, on the Mir, it was great because you, you'd only get uh, about three orbits a day out of 16 where you even went over Russia and you could talk to them, and then you could only talk to them for 10 minutes at a time. So that was a total of about 30 minutes a day. The rest of the time, you could get on with your job. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now, you know, you can you can be called at any moment. I think everybody can relate to the phone interrupting. Yeah, and the phone, the, 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 yeah, the, 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 you know, the uh, BlackBerry iPhone thing. Too. Um, another question. Uh, I, I saw a mention that uh, you were awarded a Yuri A. Gagarin gold medal, and uh, that's one of many honors that, that you've received. Uh, what do you value the most of, of the many awards that you've gotten? Um... I, I do think that was an important one. Uh, I got a, 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 a uh, it was the uh, it was an American Hero of the Year award, and uh, after my mirror flight, I was very proud to receive that. And it was for just, in my, as far as I can see, just staying on the mirror. <laughs> but during that time, there was a collision, and we had a number of difficulties. And uh, people, I think half seriously asked me if I wanted to leave. And I said, no, of course not. But because I didn't say, get me out of here, <laughs> I was given that honor, and uh, I appreciate it greatly. Uh, it's some recognition to, uh, to do a job, do it well, and, yes. and have everything turn out. Uh, one last question, um, and correct me if I'm not saying this right, but do you currently work on spacesuit development, or is that... I have been, and uh, still do testing. But because of my... Um, Obvious and more recent, not more recent, but just experience in the Russian program and my ability to speak Russian well and my knowledge of the Russian managers, I have now become uh, head of a, a new group in the astronaut office, the Soyuz branch, and I track and help understand the changes that are occurring in the Soyuz vehicles as they come along, because a new one's made every time, and uh, pass those on uh, to our NASA crews and international partner astronaut crews. Um, and that involves me going to Russia many times a year, four or five times a year, and, and taking part in their reviews and also the uh, crew exams. Sounds like you help the uh, crews on a, upcoming launches to, to not be behind as far as knowing exactly what the ship is that they're going to be flying. That's right. But, um, and also I provide, um, uh, and my partner in this is Shannon Walker, also recently flown on the Soyuz. We provide um, a... a basically mission assurance. We're understanding what issues there are with the Soyuz. We make sure we think that they're safe enough uh, to go with and, and carry our crews and then um, 
passed it on to our managers. I've never, I've never really heard much about it, the Russian Orlon suits. Mm -hmm. How do they compare to what we're used to seeing our NASA astronauts in on EVAs? The Russian Orlon suit is a spacesuit. Uh, it has a, a visor pretty similar to the uh, EMU, as we call it, the U.S. suit. And uh, for an astronaut, that's the most important thing. It's the view. <laughs> the next most important thing is your, the work that you're sent out there to do. And uh, at that point... It's how easily you move your arms and then, of course, your hands and the gloves and how much you can manipulate your tools. And there are differences, quite significant differences in the suits um, in those areas. The Russian suit is capable of being donned in an hour and you can go outside. No, no other uh, pre-breathe required. The U.S. suit can't do that because it's a lower-pressure suit um, and it requires a, a significant preparation of the crew. We call it camp-out, you know, where we actually live in the airlock for uh, overnight to get nitrogen out of our bloodstream. But the advantage of having a, a U.S. suit like that is that it's more flexible. It's not such a high pressure. The Russian suit suffers from that flexibility of being rapidly donable and not being quite so flexible. And uh, those are the two differences. The Russians know about that, uh, and so they adapt their tasks to be more sturdy and um, robust, I would say. Uh, the U.S. have definitely taken advantage of their um, flexibility in the gloves. By, and that was shown, I think, best of all when they did the most recent and last... Uh, Hubble servicing mission, where they were actually changing out circuit boards in boxes that were never intended to have boards removed. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Talking Space. This is Mark Ratterman, and I'm here with Tara Rutley. Tara has a PhD in neuroscience. She's the associate program scientist for the ISS at Johnson Space Center. And uh, as I've looked into some of the information online on her, her bio and her work experience, I was quite thrilled to be able to talk with her. So, welcome to Talking Space. Thank you. I'm glad to be talking to you. Uh, when, I, when I realized that you had worked extensively, I guess I'll, I'll start a little bit with the past and then come forward to the present. But when I saw that you had worked a lot with uh, kind of the human factors and... and uh, the equipment of, of keeping the astronauts healthy on the ISS, I thought that's a, a, an interesting thing that has got to be more complex and a lot more research and study into it than we think of just somebody working on a, on a bicycle. Right. In fact, for the first eight years I was at NASA, I was a biomedical engineer, and I was the lead for the health equipment um, that's used on Space Station now. And, um, in fact, I didn't want to be an engineer growing up. I actually wanted to be a scientist, but it, it, my path took me through um, science and engineering and education. And so um, when I landed at NASA, that's what they wanted me to do, and I was happy to do it. And, um, yeah, what I realized when I got there was developing hardware for spaceflight, especially for human use, especially something as critical as the medical system. Um, boy, yes, it's, it's high-quality control. Uh, you have to think a little bit differently. First of all, you have to think a little bit differently when you're designing around microgravity because that gravity vector is gone and pumps act differently, fluids act differently, lots of things behave differently in, in microgravity. So with even with the gravity component in mind, then there's a whole level of quality control at NASA just to get flight hardware up through what we call certification. So from concept to design to final close out of paperwork, 
the binders could probably fill the room of paperwork that we that we sit in now, and that's for a good reason, right? You got to keep keep the crew alive and keep them safe, and everything is quality control, quality checked. What kind of equipment were was part of uh, the systems that you worked on and kind of brought through the process to? to be in flight hardware. You know, when I started, I started out working on the exercise bike that's up there right now, the cycle ergometer. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I cut my teeth on as a new engineer. And then um, I took the lead on the health maintenance system. And that, that's, uh, that was working on things like the defibrillator for um, the first space station and the, the oxygen re- resupply, the respiratory support pack. And even just the basics, like sending up their, their medicine, um, ibuprofen or motion sickness meds. Or, um, and there was an ambulatory care pack, IV bags and things like that. Um, each one of those, although you can purchase a lot of that off the shelf, what we do is we purchase that off the shelf and then we modify it for space flight, make sure it's certified and safe for space flight, and, and send it up that way. You, you mentioned IV type supplies. Are, are there supplies for, for health that are kind of time sensitive that have to be replaced periodically? There are, and that's a good question because uh, the IV bags were one that I believe had to be replaced every 18 months or so. And so what's happening now is there's an experiment actually happening on station to see, it's called IV Gen. It's to see if, if the crew, given the right lighter supplies and smaller supplies, can replenish and make their own IV solutions so that we don't have to keep launching up these large and heavy IV bags. And it seems to be functioning pretty well, so we're anxious to get the results and start putting that into practice um, permanently. Even more now than ever, you have to watch what your what your ability is to get cargo up exactly. there. Exactly. Because you're in competition for everything. Exactly, yeah. yes. Um, you, I, I tend to think about uh, Murphy's Law type equations, and are there any concerns that the loss of a single uh, device or machine that's part of their exercise and, you know, helping them minimize the effects of, of microgravity long term, is there any single machine that uh, if, it, if you lost it, if it couldn't be repaired, that would impact uh, a crew that was there and, and their ability to, to fly their extended mission? You know what? That's a really good question. It, it has happened in the past that one or the other exercise devices go down. We have a treadmill, a cycle ergometer, and a weightlifting machine, a weight device, resistance training. And they all serve different purposes. The cycle ergometer is important for cardiovascular. The treadmill is important for heel strike on the bones and cardiovascular. And the resistance exercise device, obvious reasons, bone and muscle. And so, um, so... You know, it has happened. If one of those goes down, each one has a certain type of redundant capability that that could be maintained. And then the the operations folks, the flight directors and the engineers and the flight docs in line would evaluate day by day and report to the program whether or not this has become critical enough to to reevaluate how the mission's going, so to speak. So far, we've never had to go down that path, but the question does, has come up. And uh, fortunately, we've had backup systems that, that are in place that... Can mitigate some of that. I'm, I'm curious, uh, not having the anything close to the education that you have. I see a <laughs> doctor of philosophy and neuroscience. If I'm if I'm stating that correctly, yeah. what does that mean? Or what did when when you when you looked in that direction? What did you think it mean versus what does it mean to you now? You know, I just thought it meant pursuing something I thought would be really fascinating and fun. Um, when I was young, I asked an astronaut, what did it take to get you where you are today? 
And it's the most important piece of advice I've ever gotten, and that was do what you love. And so that's what I did. You know, I, I, I thought neuroscience is philosophical. It tells us about who we are and where we come from. Um, there's some fascinating things even associated with spaceflight with regards to neurosciences that, that happens. And so I was just pursuing it thinking it was fascinating. Now that I'm on this side of neuroscience and looking back on it, uh, it's come in it, it, two things. It's still philosophical to me. As the older I get, I think more and more about who we are and, and what our brain is doing and, and uh, where we came from. And, uh, and then with regard to spaceflight, it's really neat because now that I'm the, the associate program scientist, I can look at all of the experiments that come in with regard to the neurosystems and neurovestibular systems and, and get to evaluate those with a, different, with a little bit more critical eye, which is really actually fun too. When you talk about the uh, vestibular systems... You know, I think of what I've heard of some of the astronauts when they initially launch and they're in microgravity. Some of them adapt to it quickly, some of them adapt to it slowly. Mm -hmm. um, where are we, do you think, in our understanding of, of that whole area? Yeah, it's so individual, the way each individual responds. And when you're doing research with regard to that, um, you, first of all, you have a small number of subjects, astronauts. It's not a lot of people to study for a, for a study, for a research study. And second, they react so individually, it's hard to do the stats on that. So we're still getting a handle on some of the trends that we see. And um, with that, with the different trends, there are lots of different potential causes. And in fact, we can do a lot of ground research to try to parse out the, the causes of what's actually happening in space, too. And so a, a majority of the research is done in the labs on the ground, in fact, and, um, and they're putting out some pretty interesting results, too. So. I also read, uh, let's see, I guess at this point, about seven years ago, you were part of the NEMO-6, NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations. Yeah. You spent some time in NEMO. Yes. What was that like? Amazing, <laughs> wouldn't you think? Um, I got to spend 10, 10 days underwater with, um, in an underwater habitat with uh, three astronauts who while we were down there, just got to spend all that time evaluating a suite of engineering experiments that myself and teams around me in the engineering group designed for potential candidates for use on space station. We kind of wanted to get a feel for a real simulation of what a real, uh, really being in the ISS environment and my, in schedule would be, uh, have an impact on our hardware. And so that was pretty darn amazing, yeah. We got good feedback from that. i got to come back to the present because uh, one of the things that's been top uh, kind of top thing for talking about on our show has been AMS. Yeah. Is that part of the excitement in your current job? Because yes. I, I read that, that you're, uh, and I've lost track of my note, what's, what's, your, what's your position currently at, at Johnson? So currently I'm the Associate Program Scientist for the International Space Station. Um, the Chief Program Scientist is Julie Robinson, so I, I work with her. And um, and so I get to evaluate all and look at all of the different experiments that come in across the space station. So that is, uh, with, and within every discipline, fascinating. But AMS, yes, the, the largest payload um, going up on this flight, it's probably going to tell us the most we've ever, ever learned about the origin and structure of our universe. And when I talk about it, I feel like I'm talking about science fiction because some of the things I've read and, and when I talk to people... It's amazing. It's truly going to, it could find dark matter, um, antimatter, could potentially find um, new particles leading to a new form of matter called strangelets. I mean, brand new things that we've never seen before. And I had the honor to, to meet Professor Ting and get to talk with him a little bit about it too. So I'm very fortunate in, in my role. It's really, I'm enjoying it a lot. In departments that aren't necessarily connected or, or that involved with AMS, what's the, the buzz? It, is there excitement about it? Is it something that 
is is kind of widespread through people that you have contact with? It is. It's widespread through everyone that I've had contact with. I don't know if it's just who I'm, who who is in my inner circle, but it seems like those I go out and talk to, even outside of Johnson Space Center, outside of NASA, seem to have a feel for this big payload. And because when when you say dark matter and antimatter, everybody stops and goes, wait. I think I've seen that on science fiction somewhere, and it kind of gets everybody's attention. So I think I think the folks around the planet, or at least around our nation, are really super excited. I think they're aware and they're excited. I don't think they know that that the second you turn AMS on, they'll start to be able to collect data, and they probably don't know. It'll take a few years before the data is um, evaluated thoroughly. And uh, but once it is, all of that data is going to be put into a public database that'll be accessible to all astrophysicists around the world, and they'll be able to mine that data too. So it'll be fascinating. I got one last question. Okay. What <clears throat> type of research or, or anything that, that falls in, in your in your purview, if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. what is most interesting to you? Not necessarily the big headlines like AMS, but what's something that's most interesting to you? I, I could look at it from two different perspectives. One is the physiological perspective. That That's my background, too. And I think the changes that happened to humans in, in humans body in space fascinating truly fascinating and uh, I mean we're designed for gravity our bones our muscles what would we look like if we didn't develop in gravity so that part the changes in the human body amaze me and even the and then there are the, the, the other thing that fascinates me is the big headliner AMS because that tells us where our universe might come from and I think if you put the two together my whole umbrella just comes from a philosophical source it's like who are we? Why? Why? Where we? Where did we come from? We may never find out why we're here. NASA can't solve that. But ah, I love to take all the little bits of data and put it together and try to, in my own mind, tell a really cool story. Well, thank you for talking with You're us. You're very welcome. It's, it's a thrill to hear some of the science of what's what ISS is all about. Thank you. And I hope that with the shuttle program coming to a close, that people start to realize the great value of what's happening out Exactly. There, so. Space station is human exploration. We're not done with human exploration of space. That's the space station, so. Thank you. Thank you. And a big thank you from all of us at Talking Space to NASA, to the Kennedy Space Center Media Services staff. They do a lot of work to make possible the availability of these astronauts and special guests that we get to talk to. And a big thank you to our guests.